Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Welcome, folks. We are two weeks away from Halloween, a little less now, or All Hallows' Eve. It's a time when many people dig spooky stories and scary movies. Vampires feature prominently within this genre. So how about we talk about vampirism? And to begin to get into it, I actually want to share a little bit of a song with y'all that some of you might remember from Rage Against the Machine from the 1990s. Uh, If you're not familiar with their 1998 song, No Shelter, it was on the soundtrack for the thriller film Godzilla and has some pretty subversive critical media literacy built into their lyrics. So a great example of a cultural product, so to speak, that's playing with that seed that we planted during week one of this autumn series. So please feel free to have a listen now if you're not familiar with the Rage Against the Machine song, No Shelter, from the 1998 Godzilla soundtrack, to see what it is that they're saying about scary characters that are in Hollywood movies, and then we can break it down. Let's have a listen. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
So we could continue, um, but I hope this little flash from the past, right, taking it back to 1998, um, was generous for y'all in terms of thinking through that critical media literacy that we were building out a few weeks back. So why don't we just break down some of these lyrics real quick? The main attraction, distraction. I've got you number the number the numb, empty your pocket, son. They've got you thinking that what you need is what they're selling. Makes you think that buying is rebelling. From the theaters to malls on every shore, the thin line between entertainment and war. The front line is everywhere. There be no shelter here. Spielberg, the nightmare works, so push it far. Amistad was a whip, the truth was feathered and tarred. Memories erased, burned and scarred, trade in your history for a VCR. Cinema, simulated life, ill drama, Fourth Reich culture, Americana. Change to the dream they've got you searching for, the thin line between entertainment and war. And then what was the refrain that we just closed out on? Godzilla, pure motherfucking filler, keep your eyes off the real killer. Right? So again, for any of y'all that did not see Godzilla in the late 1990s, I know that for me when I was in middle school, this lyric was incredibly revealing. So if Godzilla is just filler, keeping our eyes off of the real killers, who are the real killers, right? So we could riff off of this example from Godzilla, right? A kind of low-key horror suspense monster movie, right, from the late 90s. Um, but invite us more broadly to consider, right, like we know, how often Hollywood movies are actually often functioning as a propaganda arm for DC politics. So shout out to Rage Against the Machine for seeding that critical media literacy in a lyric that certainly for me as a middle schooler helped me feel like somebody else in the world is paying attention to all of this strange messaging within the mainstream culture. So on that note, how about we talk about vampirism, right? In the spirit of, right, that critical media literacy. So hang on a minute. Hollywood has us afraid of, right, mythological monsters specifically as a diversion or a distraction potentially from paying attention to what might be ultimately much more consequentially horrifying, terrifying, scary. So how about we apply that, right, from a situation such as, right, a Godzilla monster movie that lots of people around this time of year might be watching and might be feeling afraid of, and how about we apply some of that, right, to talking more specifically about vampirism. So I'm kind of loosely playing with the language of vampirism here to talk about in particular, something that's called extractivism. Have you heard of extractivism before? So resilience.org defines the term in this way. Let's check this out. Quote, one could simply define extractivism as a productive process where natural resources are removed from the land or the underground and then put up for sale as commodities on the global market. But defining extractivism isn't really that easy. 
Extractivism is related to existing geopolitical, economic, and social relations produced throughout history. It's an economic model of development that transnational companies and states practice worldwide, and that can be traced back more than 500 years all the way to the European colonial expansion. You can't tell the history of the colonies without talking about the looting of minerals, metals, and other high-value resources in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Looting that first nourished demands for development from the European crowns and later from the United States, and more recently also from China. Today, this model of accumulation of wealth remains a key part of the structure of a globally dominant capitalistic system, a system where power is in the hands of those who control money and industry that have extended the extractive frontier to the detriment of other forms of land and resource uses. Such exploitation has also appropriated human bodies in the form of slaves or, more recently, as labor-intensive, precarious workers. Extractivism is entirely tied up with exploitation of people. Today's extractive industries, such as gas, oil, and mining have an egregious reputation of violating human and environmental rights and supporting highly controversial political and economic reforms in poor countries, end quote. So how about we take it back and acknowledge some of the luminaries that have been saying this for longer than most of us have been alive? Have any of you heard of the legendary text, how Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. If not, I sincerely encourage you to check this book out at your earliest convenience because it provides within the context of the African continent such an immaculately researched history of exactly this phenomena of extractivism. And before we delve into that a little bit more broadly, I actually want to invite us to consider what this looks like on a little bit of an individual level, right? Because capitalism and colonialism do encourage us to perceive ourselves through a vampiric perspective as well. So I want to read a little quote from this text that's called The End of the Cognitive Empire, The Coming of Age of Epistemologies of the South, right? And it talks about what is called within this text, what the Sousa Santos calls self-fetishism. Let me know if you're familiar with any of these dynamics. So... In a world in which labor, without rights, dominates the horizon of productive life, the self is bound to promote itself as a commodity, a lone entrepreneur, a precarious worker whose main business is to sell himself or herself. The ideal type of entrepreneur is someone whose individual self has both use value and surplus value. The same subjectivity divided in two, one that exploits 
and the other that is exploited. On the other hand, if one sees oneself as a commodity, one's bound to see others as rival commodities. In order to succeed in the competition, one must mobilize one's qualities as a capitalist, a colonialist, and a patriarchal subject as a way of enhancing one's own surplus value. Under such circumstances, nobody conceives of himself or herself as so utterly oppressed as being entirely deprived of the potential for surplus value, that is, for exploitation. Accordingly, social life is experienced as a sea of merchandise, both human and non-human merchandise, right? So what would be some examples of this? I mean, again, even taking it back decades, do any of y'all remember, for instance, when J-Lo insured her ass, right? You see by people that are astoundingly colonized into this kind of capitalist mentality, them actually thinking that there's some savvy in attempting to monetize ourselves as fully and as intimately as possible. And so in the face of that, for folks that do this work, right, such as Boaventura de Sousa Santos in this text, The End of the Cognitive Empire, what does he call for as one remedy? Unsettling self-fetishism. I'll say it again, in the face of that, right, extractivism towards yourself, he advocates for unsettling that self-fetishism. So I do just want to name that, right, since this, right, extractivism or vampirism is so deeply sedimented within the mainstream culture, it does get distorted and turned back in on ourselves quite often. But why don't we take it from that individual level and then look out more broadly to some of what this kind of phenomena looks like right at a systemic level. And so on that front, I would actually like to bring in a little bit of a quote right from uh, talk that I know some of y'all have heard before in Liberation Spring classes, right? So this is... Uh, a piece from the legendary red power activist John Trudell, and specifically where he is naming colonialism as a form of vampirism. And so it's in his tremendous discourse that is called Mining of Human Spirit. So let's see how he talks about extractivism. Let's just listen to a brief little excerpt from John Trudell. So our relationship to power and our relationship to the reality of power is connected to that relationship. Anyway, what I see, the human, the being part, the being part of human is being mined <laughs> through the human experience. See, they're mining us. And whoever they are, I don't have the names, but I'll, you know, we'll just figure some of that out on our own because, you know, you know and I'm sure they have names. I'm real sure that they do, but they don't. but I can't say them to you because I don't. They don't want us to know their names, maybe, right? Because what they're doing isn't really, you know. In a way, it's like vampirism and a lot of things. But but anyway, in a mechanical term, we're being mined. 
So isn't that very interesting, right? Also somebody taking it back right here in the case of John Trudell, essentially during his lifetime prophesizing something that now, say just within the past couple of years, folks such as the Harvard Business School professor, Dr. Shoshana Zuboff is calling surveillance capitalism, right? Or for instance, within another framework, what Byung-Chul Han calls, right, big data as big brother. So in the context of the surveillance state, right, this mining of our minds or that deep of extractivism that Trudell was naming for us so many years before, right, the rise of social media as it currently exists is another way that we could understand contemporary vampirism. Why don't we look at another instance of this that is relatively notorious? So I don't know if any of y'all recall, right, actually just from this past summer, Elon Musk actually unapologetically saying in a tweet about, right, the attempted, right, coup in Bolivia, we will coup whoever we want. Do any of you remember that? So to back it up, right, the founder of Tesla, one of the most notorious tech bros in Silicon Valley, right, quite famously tweeted about, right, the U.S. coronavirus stimulus package. And he said, another government stimulus package isn't in the best interests of the people, in my opinion. And Armani responded saying, you know what wasn't in the best interests of the people? The U.S. government organizing a coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia so you could obtain lithium there. Because, of course, lithium is quite famously used, right, for batteries, whether it is in electric vehicles or in so many other gadgets and devices. And it was legit, with no shame in his game, a response to that call-out. Where did this tech bro so brazenly said, tweeted, we will coup whoever we want, deal with it. And so after this, as you can imagine, there was quite a public outcry. And in particular, say, right, Vijay Prashad and Alejandro Bejarano said, Elon Musk is acting like a neo-conquistador for South America's lithium. And so this would be one example that we could also talk about of contemporary vampirism that's incredibly important for us to take as seriously as possible during this time, if you ask me. So to take it back then, right, people talk about vampirism in all sorts of different ways. Have you ever heard of people talking about energy vampires? So there are multiple kinds of energy vampires we can talk about. Have you ever experienced energy vampirism? I know that I definitely have, most obviously say with some exes in the past. However, right, here's another variation of that term for us to consider, right? Taking seriously, where does energy, right, that gets used, 
overwhelmingly in the global north come from. And so Give Thanks actually just this past weekend in mid-October 2020, the socialist government of Evo Morales that was deposed in this U.S.-backed imperialist coup was actually reinstated in a landslide of a successful election. So incredibly encouraging news that when people fiercely fight back against vampirism and against U.S. imperialism, they can win. How amazingly encouraging. So I really invite us to take seriously that model coming from Bolivia just within the past week, right, as a corrective to that obscenity of Elon Musk's that we just looked to as an example. Uh, And again, isn't it so interesting Because even when people use the language of energy vampirism in the mainstream, perhaps you might have noticed people could be talking about appliances. I do that sometimes, right? So as you know, if you leave appliances plugged into right sockets, they slowly but surely drain energy, even if you're not, say, using a toaster or whatever it might be. So on that front, I unplug appliances, short of, say, my fridge. And so those appliances can sometimes be called energy vampires, so to speak, because they're sucking energy all the time that they're plugged in. Um, Although that's admittedly quite an individualistic action. It's one of dozens that we could consider committing to on a daily basis, although hopefully with an eye to creating systemic change. So on that front, how else could we understand energy vampirism, such as, for example, when it comes to energy more broadly or energy policy transnationally? And on that front, I would actually like to bring in, surprise, surprise, a little bit of a quote from the incredibly well-known decolonial revolutionary and scholar Franz Fanon, specifically from one of his most well-known texts, Wretched of the Earth, and particularly the most infamous chapter from Wretched of the Earth, which is called Concerning Violence, because he talks about this energy vampirism in Concerning Violence as well. And it's important for me to bring this in like I just did, right, with De Sosa Santos, right, or like I did in bringing in Walter Rodney's, right, quite famous, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, because these are not new issues by any stretch of the imagination. And so to the extent that we're committed to dealing with them, there's nothing like having that humility and learning from folks who have come before around how people have understood this kind of extractivism. Have any of you read Concerning Violence or Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth more broadly? If not, why don't we go ahead and just have a look at a little bit of what he has to say, again, within this piece related to resources more broadly. Uh, So it comes up in multiple areas within the text, but one of the things that he brings in in particular is a concern about the thievery that so often gets obfuscated or obscured 
in colonial conditions. So for instance, right, let's listen to a little bit of a quote from Fanon. He talks about particular settings where decolonization attempts, right, are taking place, but where folks have not really quite yet understood some of the material conditions and concerns that our collective liberation really entails. So folks are attempting to decolonize in some capacity, but they haven't yet figured out exactly what that looks like, and that can ensue, right, or result in very dangerous consequences. We've seen this in so many examples historically. And so Fanon says, but it so happens sometimes that decolonization occurs in areas which haven't been sufficiently shaken by the struggle for liberation. And there may be found those same know-all, smart, wily intellectuals. We find intact in them the manners and forms of thought picked up during their association with the colonialist bourgeoisie spoilt children of yesterday's colonialism and of today's national governments. They organize the loot of whatever national resources exist. Without pity, they use today's national distress as a means of getting on through scheming and legal robbery by import-export combines, limited liability companies, gambling on the stock exchange, or unfair promotion. And so I bring this up here because this is a situation that we see in so many different nation states throughout the world today. Can you think of any? So we're specifically maybe, say, European or U.S. colonizers have formally been kicked out, say, officially of a federal or a state government. However, the power dynamic that colonialism entrenched still hasn't been substantially shaken up, right? So you could see the same dynamics of what did Fanon name, right? Import-export, right? Not really substantially changing, even if the might be right of their own community. So this is something that Fanon quite famously named as the native bourgeoisie, right? And this is something that is really important for us to be able to have discernment around because sometimes it is, right, our own community members that are enabling that vampirism that today in many places could be called neo-colonial vampirism, right? So it's neo-colonialism that Fanon was quite concerned about. So again, where there have been some national liberationist struggles, and yet if that, right, extractivism or that vampirism hasn't been dealt with, then so often it's just our own family and our own communities screwing over one another. Uh, and so I bring this up in part because, right, this is something that some people have some difficulty naming. Have you ever noticed that before? Where sometimes it can almost be easier to name a colonial condition or a colonizer or a colonial dynamic if it involves, say, people that are racialized as white, 
also known as white people, or perhaps right European folks, but it can be a little bit trickier if we're dealing with BIPOC communities. And so give thanks, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel with so many of those kinds of situations. We've got so much wisdom to learn from from folks like Fanon and so many others that have come before us that have warned us about exactly these kinds of dynamics. And so one other thing that I want to bring in around that is this language of resources. Where does that come from to begin with? Have any of y'all ever noticed, right, how common it is for people to use this language to say, quote, natural resources, quote, end quote? Are there any other settings where you might have heard that term come up? How about, for instance, quote, human resources, quote, end quote, right? So this is a kind of bureaucratic language that has overwhelmingly been perpetuated throughout the planet by virtue of, right, capitalist corporate conditioning. So for instance, if any of y'all have ever worked in a large corporation before, there might have been a what? a human resources department, right? Maybe you had to go to HR, so to speak, to be able to fill out paperwork, right, or documentation before starting a job. If you've ever worked at a corporation like a university or another corporation these days. And so it's important for me to back up and encourage us to pause and to consider that languaging to begin with. Because you know what? There's nothing natural or normal about the language of resources. So I bring this up because, right, some of us actually use, right, the word somewhat differently as a verb, right? I'm going to use an example. Something just got resourcified. I'll say it again, like, do you notice how we as humans, right, as living beings are getting resourcified? Did you notice how that forest is getting resourcified, perhaps by, oh, I don't know, a timber industry, right, that's wanting to make money off of it. And so we've kind of lost, right, for those of us that are into collective liberation and taking it seriously, and especially from an anti-speciesist perspective, like for those of us that care about all of life and not just humans, we've kind of lost any hope of collective liberation if we don't pause to ask at the outset, hang on a minute, where did this language of resources come from to begin with? Who perpetuated it? Why is it being promoted? And what's the impact of that kind of languaging? Do you all have any idea? If you've ever taken, say, a philosophy 101 level class, right, one of the things that can come up quite often is this subject object divide, right? One of the principal forms of, right, domination, of injustice, of control is when beings, right, living beings, right, get what? Objectified, right? Like you are robbed of your subjectivity, right? So in Western philosophy, right, this is like a form of diminishing or of belittling or of 
minimizing, of rendering life right in front of us as less than, right? Like, for example, say in the context of cis-heterosexism, maybe some of y'all might have heard somebody say, like, ooh, I'm not sure about that particular image. To me, it sure seems objectifying. Do you notice the objectifying that is taking place when, say, the timber industry talks about an old-growth forest as what? Quote, natural resources, quote, end quote. It's like a distancing from life, right? And I bring this up especially because, right, if we take it back and we really encourage ourselves to consider what it means when John Trudell says, protect your spirit because you're in a place where spirits get eaten, Right, this idea that, right, the depth of, right, disrespect that is just the norm, the status quo within this culture, right, is so pernicious that we do need to ask these deep questions about how's this getting perpetuated in language? How is this getting promoted conceptually, right? How on earth did so many humans for sure in a place like the global north and especially, right, the reigning empire on the planet today, right, the settler colonial U.S., how on earth, right, are folks so horrifically imbalanced to just racing towards omnicide, right, the killing of all the things and annihilationism within that broader culture, right, these are some of the distancing mechanisms when we objectify all of life like an old growth forest is just natural resources that can make right that colonial looting that Franz Fanon was talking about in the wretched of the earth all the easier right because our very language that is forced upon so many of us within the mainstream culture is so deeply objectifying and resourcifying, right? So Ms. T sharing, when you broke down the etymology of technology too, and its relationship to consumption and natural resources, that was deep. Precisely, Ms. T, thank you for bringing that in here, right? So this is exactly why, again, a tech bro like Elon Musk in Silicon Valley can feel this audacious, horrific sense of entitlement, right, not just to, right, the peoples of a place like Bolivia and fucking with them, but also to, right, feel like, oh, I get whatever I want, wherever I want it, regardless of where it is on the planet, right, just like so often people feel some sense of entitlement in the settler colonial U.S. to say oil, right, um, to gas that is in other parts of the world, and how so often do we hear this justified within the mainstream culture, right, so often there's this refrain that, quote, the American way of life, end quote, needs to be preserved, that's just taken for granted, like it's some kind of given a priori, right, it's like not even up for debate, that's not even a question, but if we pause and we put that in conversation with some of these conceptual tools that we've been getting into today, that's definitely up for dialogue, right? So even, for example, when the U.S., right, 
federal government and military industrial complex was most recently invading Iraq. Do y'all remember what the name of that operation was? Operation Iraqi Liberation. What was the acronym for that? O-I-L, oil, unapologetically. I mean, that's the extent to which this kind of annihilationist vampirism is just getting rubbed in the face of so many of us. Again, pretty unapologetically. Do any of y'all remember that? Or maybe any other instances of vampirism that come to mind now? I'll give y'all a second to share if you're so inclined. <laughs> Godzilla was just a poor mutated blizzard, right? The speciesism is just so deep, right? It's such a horrifying form of obfuscation that so often, right, capitalist colonial murder, right, and totally unnecessary violence gets obscured or swept under the rug, right, through these classic speciesist tropes, right? Like whether it's Jaws or otherwise, right, this like, Joseph Conrad, heart of darkness, right? Super white supremacist, fear of the jungle, fear of the ocean, fear of nature, fear of the dark. And when that is so deeply sedimented within our consciousness, so often folks are much less likely to realize there's actually a whole lot more harm going on, right, in the most allegedly civilized, right, or metropolitan places in the sense that the tech bros of developed spaces like Silicon Valley are doing much more violence than, say, sharks in the ocean or animals that live in the jungle because that's their homes. Uh, let me see what else y'all are sharing here in the chat. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Let's talk about the parallels to the coup in Iran that unseated Mossadegh. You can say that again. And so around that, something else that, if you ask me, is incredibly important for us to consider uh, is the way that this extractivism also shows up in the realm of water, which is unfortunately a devastating right example to have to get into. And so I would like to share one more instance with y'all, right? Another example for us to ground in. And it actually comes from a tremendous... That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyaya, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. Surprise!
power of the people is louder than the evil Deceitful and coward, people in power All power to the people, it's the hour of the peaceful Freedom is ours, yeah, freedom is ours